everybody. As you can see, our pastor's not here. I think he's attending a baptism service for his granddaughter. So thankful for that. Uh, we're going to be talking about eschatology this morning. I apologize to the numbers, people. You didn't, you weren't expecting this, but I mean, numbers is hard to understand. So maybe you just fit this in with what, what you're already going through. So, <clears throat> all right, let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the saints. Thankful, Lord, that you care for them. Thankful, Lord, that you gather us together, uh, that you intermingle our lives, uh, that you show us that the, the common theme of our life is Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for those that are here. Pray, Lord, that you'd bless this time together. I pray most of all that as we approach you in worship, that you would be glorified, uh, that your son would be lifted up and magnified, and that we would leave here with a new zeal to serve him and a, a new uh, way of looking at, at our sin and how he has overcome it. And we pray for a hope uh, as we go out into the world and share the gospel with a lost world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so you guys just happened to land on me starting the subject of dispensationalism. So got a few experts on dispensationalism in here maybe. Uh, no, Ryan grew up in it. I, I, I didn't grow up in it, but it's, it was the church that I was saved in that is what was taught. Uh, if you guys, if you're not familiar with it, you might have, have Christian friends who talk about things like, like the rapture or the tribulation or uh, the rise of the Antichrist. Uh, maybe you have friends who are, who are uh, very concerned about geopolitical events. Oh, Russia might be getting ready to attack Israel or uh, somebody is coming up with plans to rebuild the temple in, in Jerusalem. And all these, in their minds, are signs that Jesus is coming back. And so, <clears throat> sure that you have relatives, uh, friends who, who believe in dispensationalism. And we're going to try to explain a little bit about what dispensationalism is. If you don't know this, the confession doesn't really teach a specific eschatology. So uh, it does teach covenant theology. So dispensationalism is, is, uh, is not compatible with covenant theology. But when, when it comes to what we'll talk about millennial views, when it comes to millennial views, there's not an exact millennial view that you have to hold to. So... Uh, I've got friends who are post-millennial. That would be okay with the confession. Probably most, most of the original reformers were post-millennial. Uh, Pre-millennial, as long as it's not dispensational. I think I know one person in this church who, who might be uh, pre-millennial but not dispensational. And then my view is I'm all-millennial, which just, which just means that, that I believe that the millennium started, and we'll talk about what the millennium is in a little bit. <clears throat> the millennium started when uh, Christ was was uh, arose to the throne in his ascension, and it, it continues in his reign until his second coming. So, uh, interestingly, dispensationalists though treat their view of end times as a test of orthodoxy. Actually, heard uh, Vadi Bakum. You guys heard of Vadi Bakum? He was talking about how, now this is social media. It's another reason to, to not like social media. He said there was some message board that was, that was saying that, that he was an uh, anti-Semite because he, he did not hold to dispensational theology. And that label is thrown around sometimes to people who, who, uh, who aren't dispensational. I've even heard, heard it said that the reason for the Holocaust is because those Christians in Germany were not dispensational. 
And so they, they didn't believe that the Jews were God's people. They didn't believe that God had a special plan for them. And they believed that the, that the uh, European and Gentile people are replacing the Jews. Therefore, they had the right. And there was some animosity towards Jewish people in that time because they were the ones who, who murdered Christ. Uh, but the Reformed view of theology did not uh, create the Holocaust. Now, we can argue about Martin Luther, who said some very, very terrible things about Jews, uh, but his thinking was he despised Jewish doctrine. That was a lot of what, and of course, Martin Luther always took things too far. He was a man of his time, that's how you talked, and we're a lot more sensitive these days than they were back then. So, what is dispensationalism? This is a huge question. Does anybody want to take a shot at what is dispensationalism? Nobody. I like it. Oh. I mean, just in my mind, a quick and dirty definition is just it's believing that God saves people in different, totally different ways in different times. Yeah. That would be a kind of a... That's a good. That's the part we would. That's a good nutshell. With. Yeah, we definitely disagree <laughs> with that. Yeah. Yeah, and there are some modern dispensationalists that wouldn't completely even agree with that. Uh, that they would agree that Old Testament saints were saved the same way that we are. Some, not all. Classic dispensationalism definitely, definitely divided the the ways of salvation. Even <clears throat> so, does anybody know what the word dispensation means? It's a biblical word. Dispensation. Administrations, yeah, yeah. If you have Old King James, it might use the term various dispensations, which just, just means various times or various administrations, uh, various economies. Uh, and dispensational theology gets its name from just teaching basically that there are different ways that God deals with his people in different times. I forgot to hand these out. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. That's just a little chart that shows some of the dispensations. Uh, I'm not going to get heavily into those. There's seven dispensations. There's the time of innocence, Adam and Eve. Uh, after the fall, they call that the time of conscience. I can't remember exactly why they call that time of conscience. Uh, after Noah, it's the time of human government. And then Abraham is the time of promise. Moses is the time of law, uh, and then Christ coming is the age of grace, and then there's the kingdom, the millennium, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. So, but is dispensationalism, is that the only type of theology that divides God's working with his people into these different administrations or sections of time? Don't we do that? Right, yeah, yeah. So, so, like a lot of things, the term placed upon dispensationalism isn't the best way to distinguish how it's different from other types of theology. Uh, <clears throat> we have covenant theology. We believe, I mean, we could place covenant on these things, covenant of works, uh, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham. That's how we would do it. And so... The way they look at these aren't exactly the same, but it's a system that's kind of like covenant theology where they're placing uh, God working through time in different ways to, to various people. Uh, so the name doesn't really help us much. But there are two major distinctions that make somebody dispensational. The first one is that the church and Israel are two distinct Separate people. They're, they don't come together. God has two separate plans for both of them, uh, two separate purposes. Things that are promised to Israel are not promised to the church. Uh, I even have heard some people say that Israel and the church will be separate and distinct throughout all eternity. Uh, there, there's some people who, who claim that Israel is the wife of God 
and the church is the bride of Christ. So those are strange dis- distinctions that probably make us snarl, but that is, that is some of their thinking. <clears throat> That's true, yeah. 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 And that what he what he's if you didn't hear that, there is this defining of the Jews are the earthly people and the church is a spiritual people. So the promises to the church are spiritual promises. Promises to Israel are all these physical promises, and that's why these physical promises have to be fulfilled. Uh, The second thing is they claim that this conclusion is drawn from a consistently literal interpretation of the Bible. So they claim that they hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, John MacArthur, I'll mention John MacArthur a lot just because... uh, John MacArthur is the type of dispensationalism that I was very deep into, so so I feel like I kind of know his theology better than some. I will mention some older ones like Charles Ryrie and uh, C.I. Schofield a little bit, but MacArthur says that dispensationalism is a title for a theology that recognizes a literal nation Israel that will be restored in the future, recognizes a literal kingdom a literal tribulation and a literal literal I can't say literal this many times a literal return and a literal rapture and we would agree with a lot of this but uh, not the literal nation of Israel being restored one of the ways that this works out in Bible interpretation is that they say that the promises in the Old Testament are not given to the church. Those promises are for future Israel. So, heard John MacArthur, I actually was kind of shocked to hear this. I've never, never heard John MacArthur say this before. There's a book he wrote in 2018. I haven't read it, but I heard him talking about it in a little video clip. It's called The Gospel According to God. If you know MacArthur well, he always does these books called The Gospel According to Something. Yeah, the gospel according to Jesus, the gospel according to to the apostles. Uh, And those books are mainly just talking about how works are part of, are the fruit of salvation. So it's kind of, those books are are, uh, arguments against what we would call easy believism. So those are are good solid books. Don't really know what the purpose of this book is, but he said that in this book, when he's talking about Isaiah 53, so who knows what Isaiah 53 talks about? The suffering servant, yeah. So he says, that isn't really a prophecy about Christ's death. Not that it's completely disconnected from it. But what it is, is it's more of a prophecy about these Jews right here at the end mourning over the death of Christ. So, has nothing to do with the church. The church doesn't do this mourning. Uh, not even, even the Jews of Christ's time. It's, it's, these, it's these Jews in the future at the end of the tribulation who will, who will mourn over uh, the suffering servant. So, there's a lot of presuppositions in that. Yes, you will hear the term replacement theology a lot. And so what they say is that we believe that God is like done with Israel. And some people, I think, even teach that Israel is, is cursed to an extent. There, that has been a teaching in the past. Uh, and then the church takes over and takes up all of the promises given to Israel. Uh, I don't like the term replacement theology because uh, it implies like a God changing his mind kind of thing. I think it was always the plan of God for, uh, for the people of Israel to not really... The point of the people of Israel is not that they're an ethnic people. 
they are a foreshadowing and a type of, of God's people. And there were true believers in Israel and there were false believers in Israel. And you didn't have to be an ethnic Jew in order to be part of Israel. And uh, I think, we're, we're going to do a whole class on Romans 11, That's where we'll talk about this a lot. But I like to call it engrafting theology instead of replacement theology. Because Gentiles are, are grafted in to what Paul says is the root. The root is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ has always been the root of the, of the tree that is Israel. Branches were cut off of Israel. Paul says there were natural branches that are still there because he's one of them. And, and God grafted in what he calls unnatural branches, which is the Gentiles. But it's all being grafted into the same tree, which is Jesus Christ. So, so Israel is not completely about the ethnic people. It is about those who have faith in Christ. And so just because there's more Gentiles being grafted in at some point in history doesn't mean that there aren't still Jews being grafted into at the same time. It's not about the ethnicity. It's about being in Christ. So, okay. Uh, also heard him say, this was interesting to me, Ezekiel 36, which we have up here, uh, that's not for you either. That's a promise for Israel in the future. So that, you know, removing your heart of stone, that's for these Jews right here at the end of the tribulation. God's going to fulfill all those promises to them in the future. So, all right, so a little disclaimer, just because I'm saying I will talk a lot of uh, against John MacArthur, but I really like John MacArthur, so don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> I just don't agree with him on his dispensationalism, and I don't agree with him uh, that there's this, this distinction between the church and Israel. Okay, any questions about this? This is kind of like just a little, I'm just giving you a little uh, appetizer for dispensationalism. So the problem is that dispensationalists put the emphasis upon the Old Testament promises as literal, and in my opinion, they minimize the way the New Testament handles those Old Testament promises. So they emphasize the literal over here in the Old Testament, but then when somebody uses that passage or a passage like it in the New Testament to, to interpret something about Christ, they don't say that that's, they don't say that that's wrong, but they minimize that the New Testament author is saying that's actually what this Old Testament prophecy meant. In my opinion, that's one of their major problems, uh, and it's an interpretation problem. So, well, uh, so for instance, the uh, Ezekiel, I can't remember the exact passages, most of chapter, all the chapter 40 through like 48, something like that. It might start in the 30s. But there's all these chapters in Ezekiel that talk about the temple. And there's this huge temple that's going to be built. I wish Mike was here because he studied that, that passage so well. Uh, I want to think he said that the size of the temple is like the size of the entire land of Israel. That's, that, that, the, the dimensions that Ezekiel's talking about. And it's very obvious that this isn't supposed to be a literal temple. And so there's sacrifices going on in this temple. And so that's, that's part of the, of the prophecy of Ezekiel. Okay. And when you get to the author of Hebrews, what does he say about sacrifices? And temple worship. It's gone. So the author of Hebrews, so, so dispensationalists will say, well, that's for the church age. But they believe that all those sacrifices in that temple are still going to be built here. And so they kind of ignore the, the theology that because Christ has come, there's no need for a temple. And it's actually kind of heresy to say that we're going to go back to sacrifices. And here's the thing that's always gotten me about this. They believe Christ is here. Christ is there. He's on the throne. He's the, 
He's the David on the throne in Zion. But there's a temple. He's physically there, and there's a temple. And there's sacrifices going on. And so they're not really applying the theology of of the book of Hebrews to their thinking of the millennium because they need those Old Testament prophecies to be literal for Israel and they have to be fulfilled literally for the people of Israel. Yeah. It's a memorial. Right, yeah, yeah. So what Ken said is that, and he's right, uh, I think I've heard Robert Thomas, he's a big dispensational modern uh, commentator on the book of Revelation. I think he's got like four volumes. It's a huge commentary. But I want to think he's one of the first ones that started putting forth this view that, that in the millennium, it's, the sacrifices aren't, part of worship, I mean, they still would have to be kind of part of worship, like the Lord's Supper, uh, but they're not done for, for atonement, but they're done as a memorial to remember what Christ did. Uh, but that's not literal. That's not a consistently literal interpretation. That is a forcing the idea of literal on it, but then taking away the literal aspects that mess up your, your view. So... <clears throat> And one of the reasons, we'll get into this a little bit, one of the reasons that they do this is they accuse us of spiritualizing, okay? And, and we do, we spiritualize certain texts, and spiritualizing can be abused. Uh, all you have to do is walk into some church that doesn't believe that the canon's closed, and they're spiritualizing everything. Every passage is spiritual about this and that. Uh, the funny thing is that a lot of dispensationalists are doing that now, because you've got because you've got continuationist dispensationalists, people who don't believe that the Bible is closed. And so they are, they are taking, creating prophecies and spiritualizing all kinds of things uh, as it refers to dispensational theology. So everybody falls in the trap of spiritualizing, but as reformers, this is what the Dr. Kara rule was always. Dr. Kara was the, was the professor of New Testament at RTS. He would always say, if the New Testament does it, you can do it. So if the New Testament doesn't do it, then you don't do it. So uh, when we think about types, uh, we think about fulfillments, those kinds of things. There's just different ways that the New Testament interprets passages that if we have just read the Old Testament, we would have not thought it was going to be fulfilled that way. Uh, There's lots of examples of that. I don't have any in front of me. You guys can probably even think of some. But here's one I was going to look at. Uh, so back to the whole idea that Israel, Israel has to be interpreted literally. Turn to Hosea chapter 11. You waiting for me to tell you who to take it to? <clears throat> Give it to Mary. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay. Who is the son that's called out of Egypt in this passage? You're jumping too far. Israel, that's right. Yeah, so Israel is the son who was called out of Egypt. Now, is this literally referring to Israel? Shake your head harder, Carla. (laughs) Yes. Was Israel literally called out of Egypt? Yes. But how does Matthew interpret this? You guys probably know it without even turning there. Yeah. Jesus' parents took him down to Egypt because Herod was wanting to kill him. He was killing all the infants under a certain age because, uh, because he knew that the that the Messiah was about to come. And very much like another king who was killing infants in the Old Testament, 
Pharaoh, the, the stories are somewhat similar. So to escape this king, uh, the New Testament says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew says, that Hosea passage, even though it was talking about Israel in the Old Testament, ultimately it was talking about Israel, the Israel, Jesus Christ. And so if you'd have read that passage in Hosea on its own, you never got that. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and maybe some exegetical understanding that we don't have now, Matthew understood that that passage was talking about Jesus Christ. And it's funny, New Testament authors seem to take these odd passages that we would never apply to these things. <laughs> and this is one of those. And, and to me, this is saying that Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of a type that Israel was. Israel was a type. Israel was a foreshadow of the true son of God. So there's a sense in which Christ is the true Israel. That that goes back to what I was saying about those who are grafted in to Christ are Israel, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Okay. Any questions about that? So this this is an instance, and I mean dispensationalists would agree because it's just, you can't get around this, that this is an instance where Israel is not literally the nation of Israel. Okay, let's, let's talk about some terms. Uh, I want to do this before I keep going deeper into this topic. Some terms. So let's, I don't want to erase my little chart up here because the only reason I put this up here is so I can point at it every once in a while. Uh, and it's not as detailed as it ought to be. There's probably tons of things I could put in here. This is, this is as minimal of a dispensational chart as I could put up. So, let's talk about this term right here, millennium. What does millennium literally mean? Thousand. It means a thousand. Right there it is, thousand. Okay? So, what what does millennium mean when we talk about millennium in eschatology? Yeah, not millennials. (laughs) So does anybody know what chapter in the Bible this comes from? Revelation 20, that's right, yeah. So in Revelation 20, verse 4, John says that there are saints who are going to come to life and they are going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And... This is the thousand years that divides everybody in the church. Uh, We all have different views. It's a difficult passage to interpret. Uh, But because of the two dispensational distinctions that Israel is always interpreted as literal and the church and, and Israel are distinct from each other, dispensationalists believe that this thousand years is going to be the fulfillment of the land promises to Israel. So this is a literal, and it has to be a literal thousand years. Uh, The time period is literally a thousand. There are some uh, premillennialists who who don't believe that it has to be literally a thousand, but dispensationalists all all believe it has to literally be a thousand years. Uh, This is when a lot of the mosaic ceremonies come back, Uh, the the Jewish... uh, Monarchy comes back. Christ is the king. Some people actually believe that David is literally literally risen from the grave and made the king because there are passages that literally say that David will take the throne. So since it has to be literal, that can't be talking about Christ. Uh, This thousand years will be ended by what? Does anybody know what ends the thousand years? Satan rebels. So Satan, during this time, he's bound in, I guess, a literal chain with a literal lock and a literal key. I don't know if all those things are literal, but that's what the text says. And he's put in a pit. And he's released after a certain amount of time, and he comes out of the pit. 
and he, uh, he leads this rebellion. I think it's Gog and Magog are these nations that come against uh, Christ and his king or Christ and his people. And, uh, and, of course, they're just obliterated. And so the battle doesn't last long, but there's this short rebellion. <clears throat> so that's the millennium. And we'll talk about the different views of the millennium later on, but that's the dispensational view. This is where they cram all of the, uh, if you think about all of the Old Testament prophecies where they say things like, you know, the, the crops will grow forever and people will live 100 years and, and those kinds of things, that's where, that's where this, that, that one chapter is where all that's fulfilled in, in their theology. Okay, how about this word right here? You might not be able to see it. Rapture. Anybody heard of the rapture? What's the rapture? You get plucked up, that's right. So turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is where this term comes from. Oh, there you are. You threw me off because you're in the same place. Take that back over to Jim and let him read. <clears throat> so, uh, Jim, read uh, 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Okay. So we all believe in a rapture. That's, it's, it's explained right there. Uh, the word rapture is the catching away. I don't know if he's used the word catching, but the taking away. It just, it just means like a forceful taking. Uh, you'll be walking along one day and you just, taken. Uh, so we all believe in a rapture, but the, uh, the differences come when we talk about when does the rapture take place and what is the manner of the rapture. And one of the things that dispensationalists teach <clears throat> is that the rapture is a, it's a secret rapture. So in Luke 17, it talks about there'll be two men in a field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be working together. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two people will be in a bed. One will be taken. One will be left. And Christ is talking about his return when he, when he says this. And so dispensationalists take this to mean there is a secret rapture. Uh, Anybody here want to confess whether they've read the Left Behind books or not? All right, I'm not the only one. <laughs> so Left Behind, uh, you guys know Rayford Steele is the pilot, and there's the, the Buck Williams is the, uh, I wonder if we got that like from Buck Rogers or something. Buck Williams is the, is the journalist, and they're, 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 in a, they're in a flight to Chicago or somewhere, I think. And, uh, and everybody disappears, or, or half of everybody disappears. Make sure, well, or a non-Christian pilot. If you have a Christian pilot, it's going to crash, yeah. So, and what was, what was the thing, the odd little thing that was left all over the place? Yeah, everybody's clothes, everybody's shoes just laying everywhere, uh, and it's this big mystery, and the whole world is in upheaval because half the population's gone. We don't have a clue. So it's a secret. We don't know what happened. Uh, Jesus came, and nobody knew it, and everybody disappeared. And here's my little joke. Here's my little joke is if, you know those surgeries where they make you get a cadaver bone put in you? I always say don't get a Christian cadaver bone because that thing will fly out of your knee or wherever at the rapture, and you'll just, you'll lose your knee in the middle of the rapture. 
Well, it depends on your view. Uh, Some dispensationalists think it's all about the Jews, so no Gentiles will be involved in in coming to Christ after the rapture. But, uh, but a lot of modern dispensationalists believe that everybody has a second chance after, after the rapture. So, but they have to go through all these. Well, we're going to talk about the tribulation. Uh, one, one thing before Ken talks here. So the reform view is that we believe in the rapture, but it's just the second coming. And we don't believe it's a secret rapture because... You heard Jim say, there's the voice of the archangel. There's trumpets being blasted. There's all this noise that's going on that makes it seem like the whole world knows that the second coming is happening or this rapture is happening. So it's not really a secret because it is Christ basically announcing his victory. He's coming back, claiming his people, and he's judging the, judging the earth. Go ahead. <clears throat> One of the other things... <clears throat> I've had discussions with with dispensationalists is their definition of the church. Mm -hmm. And it's only those who have been baptized. Right, yeah. Okay. So then I asked them, in the rapture then, what happens to the babies? And uh, that became an interesting discussion, to Mm -hmm. say the least, uh, because they don't believe that the babies are uh, are members of the church as we do in covenant theology. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, I know some of them would say, if they're in a, under a certain age, then, then they're, yeah, age of accountability, yeah. Okay, so next term. That one kind of explains itself. The seven-year tribulation. What's the seven-year tribulation? Full term of what? Yeah, it's a full term of misery. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Uh, So this is what happens after the rapture. So the church is raptured out. So the good church, you know, we've done the right thing. We're taken out. We don't have to suffer the tribulation. Uh, this This is where God begins to bring the plagues and the curses upon the earth. And part of the purpose of this is to try to get the Jews to repent. So... There's like all these attacks on Israel. If you, uh, if you read the Left Behind book, I think there was like a, uh, Russia launched a nuclear attack upon Israel and the missiles just evaporated because God protected Israel from, from the attack of, of Russia. <clears throat> and these are things that slowly begin to turn the Jews back to their Messiah. Uh, Does anybody know where they get the seven from? Seven years? They get it from Daniel. Very good, Benji. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. I am not teaching this passage right now. (laughs) This is a very difficult passage. There's probably 20 views in the reform world of this passage. Uh, But according to dispensationalists, let's let's go and let's just read uh, Daniel 9, 27. I'm sorry, we need to read that. So give that to uh, Jessica back there. Just verse 27. Is it 9, verse 27? Yes, 9:27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, so this one week, the one week is where they get the seven years. Seven days in a week. That's real literal, isn't it? Uh, there, there are interpretive principles that make that legitimate, but I just think it's interesting that those claiming absolute literalism say one week is, and, and it literally is just uh, seven sevens or something like that. So. Being that they're literalists, I know you're curious about the uh, Joshua 21 
Yeah, you got, I don't know it. You got to read it. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fulfilled, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and there's another passage, I think it's in Kings, where it talks about, uh, it basically says that the, that the uh, promise to Abraham of his descendants being as the sands of the, of the seashore has been fulfilled too. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's in Kings, but I, it, it's under the reign of Solomon. That's all I can remember, so... Okay, uh, so they believe that this uh, this week is the seven year tribulation. This is when all the you know the trumpet judgments, the bowl or vile judgments are being poured out. Uh, this is where Antichrist rises, and it talks about a covenant being made. Uh, this covenant dispensationalists believe that the covenant is between this guy right here, the Antichrist and the Jews. So he makes some kind of covenant with the Jews, and I don't know what the covenant's supposed to be about, like maybe some treaty with the Jews, and they, they believe Antichrist rises during this time, and they divide the, this into, uh, into the first three and a half years as a tribulation, and the last three and a half years as the great tribulation. So in the middle of the week, Antichrist breaks his covenant with the Jews, and he turns on them. And, uh, and he starts desolating the temple, things like that. Now, uh, a lot of this has already been fulfilled, if you know, historically, between Daniel and the New Testament. Uh, there was a guy named Antiochus IV, and he was a, uh, a Greek ruler, and he went in and slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple. Uh, he was a tyrant who just... He, he greatly persecuted the Jews. So he is at least a type of fulfillment of what Daniel's talking about here. Okay. So Antichrist, talk about that just a little bit. Uh, dispensationalists believe that, that Antichrist is, uh, is a figure that will rise. He's also referred to as the man of sin or lawlessness. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, he's going to be a political leader. And he's going to also be like a, like a, uh, he's going to have like a religious guru with him. It's like the false prophet. And so it's like he, like he is the, like the president of the world and he has his cabinet of evil that work with him. And uh, he's going to, he's going to be very charismatic. He's going to win people to himself. Uh, people have tried to place the label on, uh, of Antichrist on anybody that they think is a leader who, who's, who is the remotely the least bit charismatic. Uh, but uh, the church won't have to deal with him, only the Jews will. And uh, most Reformed theologians believe in a person who will rise at the end. I don't know what post-millennialists believe. About, I, actually, I think I might know. Post-millennialists, I think they believe all this has been fulfilled in Nero. Uh, but there is that view out there that the Antichrist was Nero, and he's the one that fulfilled all these things. That's the preterist view, yeah. And a lot of post-millennialists, I think, I don't want to label all post-millennialists like that, uh, but I think a lot of them are partial, or, or I don't want to say full preterists, because that, that's, that's a heresy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they, they think Nero fulfilled this. Uh, there's even this theory I came across, and never heard this before. The internet is great for, like, just crazy things, so... It's funny, me and Mike were having this conversation about how when you go to look for something on the internet, it's the, it's the fringe stuff that comes up first. It's like you can't find the solid orthodox stuff. You find all the crazy stuff first. But there, there's this guy who had this theory. It's pretty interesting. He believed that the Jesuits created dispensational theology during the time of the Reformers because the Reformers said that... Uh, that the Pope was the Antichrist, remember? Martin Luther said that the Pope is the Antichrist, and our confession used to actually say that. And so this guy's saying there's, that there's evidence, and I didn't study enough to look at the evidence, but that there's evidence that there's all these Jesuit guys who created dispensationalism because it, it forces you to have an Antichrist in the future, 
not in the present. And so that would make the Pope not be able to be the Antichrist. So it, I, don't know why, I don't know why Jesuits would care that much to do that. But I don't, it just, like, like I said, I don't know why the Jesuits would, would care that much about doing that. They're more like the hit men. Okay, any questions about any of these terms that we've talked about? Millennium, rapture, tribulation, and Antichrist. There is, yeah. Uh, the Epistle of John talks about many antichrists, and he says there are even many antichrists now during his time. So uh, <clears throat> it's mostly Second Thessalonians that talks about a man of sin who will appear, uh, and there's lots of different ways to take that. I believe both, yeah. I don't, I don't believe in a type of antichrist that dispensationalists believe in. Uh, I don't know that there will be like this world-dominating figure. I don't think there will be. Uh, because for me, the big thing is that the Bible teaches that Christ's return is imminent. So, and what that means is that Christ could return at any moment. So I believe the final antichrist, I do believe that, that I don't see it, I can't get around Second Thess- Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 which makes it sound like there's going to be a final Antichrist. But I think there, that this Antichrist could, could be, and we not even know that he's here. Uh, because because the, Jesus talks about his second coming as being like everybody's going about their daily lives as though nothing's happening, and I'll be there like a thief in the night. Paul even says that in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And, uh, and because you are not children of the night, you will not be overtaken by that darkness. So, I can't remember the, I'd have to go look at it again. Uh, it does make it sound like there's this revealing of like a final antichrist, but I'm not dogmatic about that. Yeah, so. Christian, did you, I think Christian had a question. Idea or an idealism or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's antichrist ideas, yeah, yeah. And some people even interpret the man of sin in Second Thessalonians to be Satan. Some people have said that. So it's one of the reformed Bible, I, I, I won't use the word hermeneutic all the time, but I know everybody doesn't know what that means. <laughs> Bible interpretive principles is that you don't create theology off of unclear passages of Scripture. And sometimes you just have to punt. You have to be able to say, well, this could mean five different things. Just don't, I'm not going to dogmatically say it's absolutely this one. I thought Ken had something to say. Uh, Clay, go ahead. Yeah, what's the Amil view of the tribulation? That it's either already been fulfilled or it's ongoing? Uh, the all-millennial view is basically that it's ongoing. Yeah, that, uh, that these things happen. From, I don't know if you were in the class where we talked about the, the last days. The last days are the time of Christ's first coming to the second coming. So rumors of wars, earthquakes, those, I mean, those things happen all the time. And I think Christ's point is that uh, just because I have come and set up my kingdom doesn't mean that there are not tribulations still going on until my, till my second coming. So... Uh, He's trying to get people around the idea, I think, that, that uh, you know, some of the zealots had the idea that, that the Messiah was going to come set up his kingdom right then. And he was trying to get them out of this mindset that because I am in my kingdom doesn't mean that everything is utopia now. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be tribulation, death, destruction, plagues. I won't read the passage, but it's Second Thessalonians two one through eight, essentially uh, one mm-hmm. through twelve. I'm sorry, that talks about the coming of the lawless one. Yeah, and um, strong delusions. They should believe the lie. They may be condemned who did not believe the truth. Had pleasure. So there's certain signs of the age that will occur. Right. So yeah. Yeah. We could be. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. 
what would be the uh, millennial view of Satan? Is he actually released for a time? Or I can't remember what that all said. Okay, so uh, turn to Revelation 20. This question is easier for me to answer than the Antichrist questions. Because <laughs> I don't know as much about the Antichrist. <clears throat> All right, so, uh, where's my Bible? Revelation 20 says, uh, that I saw an angel come, coming down from heaven looking, uh, uh, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a th- thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were endured. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, so... Satan is bound. We believe that Satan is bound spiritually. And we believe that the Great Commission has a lot to do with with Satan's binding. So look at verse uh, 3 and tell me what is the specific way that Satan is bound. The only thing that talks about that Satan is bound. He cannot deceive the nations. Now, in the Old Covenant administration... Satan basically had dominion over everything except for Israel. Israel was like this tiny light of God's kingdom. Not that there weren't like little, you know, glimmers of lights here and there throughout the world, but primarily God's kingdom was only in Palestine. And Satan had dominion. And, and th- this is even mentioned in Christ's temptation. that that Satan can offer him the kingdoms of the world. Well, in the Great Commission, what does Jesus say has been given to him? All authority and power has been given to me, therefore do what? Go out. Go out into Satan's areas and conquer them now because Satan has been bound spiritually. He no longer has this, this authority to where he can hold the nations in darkness. And now you can go out with the gospel and you can release these areas and unbind them from Satan's control and the gospel can spread all over the whole world now. I I think that's what it's talking about. And so that's the only way that Satan's bound. He's still active. He's just been defeated. Yeah, this is just saying that at the... So like sometime before Christ returns... Satan will be allowed to, to, uh, to come forth and create a big delusion again right before the, the end. It probably is, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but he's saying that's the same thing that Second Thessalonians is talking about too, is that, that he's revealed and, and, so that, and so it could be Satan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Satan will be released from his ability to, to deceive the nations and he'll deceive them one last time and then Christ will come back and, and judge him and the nations. So, <clears throat> this stuff is all difficult because when you're talking about apocalyptic literature, it's, it's not super clear and so sometimes uh, our interpretations can sound strange and Difficult. Okay. I got five minutes. Let's see if I can go through some history real quick. So, history of dispensationalism. Does anybody know who we would consider the, I guess you could say the father of dispensationalism? Darby. Yeah. John Nelson Darby. Uh, Darby was actually an Anglican priest in Ireland. And he... He became disillusioned with the Anglican church. It's, it's funny because it's almost a little bit like John Wesley. He, 
he wanted to live a more rigid life and he didn't think that Anglicans were, were holy enough. And so uh, he saw a lot of deadness in the church. And so he was only a priest for two years and he left the church and he joined this group called the Brethren. They're just called the Brethren. And I think they're associated with the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, and so these guys also came out of the Anglican church. And so uh, Darby started teaching this dispensational theology. I don't know why he came up with it, but, uh, but it started growing in America, I think, because of the Plymouth Brethren. And so does anybody know the book that really popularized dispensationalism in America? Well, not, I shouldn't say a book, a Bible. The Schofield Bible, yeah, the Schofield Bible. And uh, these Bibles were very inexpensive and very numerous, and so, so they became kind of the Bible of most homes, uh, especially in the, the 19th and 20th centuries. And what happened was, when you think 1800s is the rise of modernism, you guys familiar with what modernism is? It's liberalism in the mainline churches. So... The Bible's not the word of God anymore. You know, Jesus isn't, this, isn't, isn't God. He's not a deity. He's not virgin born. All these types of, of big doctrines are being tossed out of the mainline denominations. And so the fundamentalists are, in a sense, the ones who kind of conserve Christianity in America for a long time. And since the fundamentalists were dispensationalists, that's why a lot of conservative America became dispensationalist. So <clears throat> this is why a lot of us will be accused of being liberal because we're not dispensational. Because those churches associate dispensationalism with being a conservative, Bible-believing Christian. And if you, if you don't take the promises to Israel literally, then you might not take the things said about Christ literally. You might not believe that Christ was literally virgin born. You might try to spiritualize that away. So just know that with your dispensational friends, that's usually where they're coming from. And they're coming from, from a place where they're trying to conserve the authority of the Scripture. So I don't think they're right, but that is, that is their motive. So, all right, I'm going to be done there. We'll not get into Charles Ryrie yet. All right, any questions? you got two minutes. One minute. Uh, Darby lived, uh, he was born in 1800 and died in 1882. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's been versions of premillennialism all throughout the church, uh, even in early church history. Uh, there was a, something called chiliasm. That's just an early form of, of, of uh, millennialism. But they didn't necessarily believe in a literal thousand years. What was the uh, main belief before dispensationalism? Well, there wasn't really a, there wasn't a set orthodoxy in times-wise. That's why you don't really see a formulation of it in, in the earlier churches because uh, they were dealing with other things like justification by faith alone and things like that. So uh, that's why we don't really have much about it in, in the confession. And that's why we call the confession an ecumenical document. Wasn't it the um, Israel becoming a nation kind of set that view on fire? Yeah, in 1948, it, yeah, that, that became uh, something that dispensationalists saw as a, a justification for their view. Uh, Gary? Dispensationalist around, taught around here is Clarence Larkin. I've not heard of him. Well, you need to. Okay. All right, last word, Ken. That shouldn't be me. I, I've noted uh, that the 19th century seemed to be the, the century of a lot of this um, separation, dispensationalism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. Yeah. That seemed to be the huge century for this. And a lot of it was the, the fault of the church because, like you said, mm -hmm. the dispensationalists started out because they looked at what was happening to the mm -hmm. church frequently and they went in this... And they believed in the authority of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. It's kind of unfortunate, but very true. Right, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you know much about J. Gresham Machen, but they would always try to lump him in with the fundamentalist, and he hated that 
because uh, because they used his they used a lot of his material to uh, to defend the authority of scripture the the fundamentalists did and and uh, so he was considered a fundamentalist because of that. <laughs> All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that that all the promises are yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what your word says about the coming of Christ. We pray most of all that we would all be ready in our hearts to see that day. And we just ask, Lord, that you would continue being with us as we gather together to worship you as your people. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.